Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Small groups have been widely implemented in the local church for many decades now. And when rightly understood, when rightly implemented, these small groups, they can complement the Sunday sermon, but they can do more than that. They can assist the church members in applying God's Word. Maturation in Christ requires both knowledge and application. And what I would like to share with you over the next few moments, that if you want to do small group life, shepherding group, home group, whatever we call these small gatherings that are outside of the corporate meeting where people come together, typically as families, couples, uh, however that dynamic is broken up, these groups can be vital to help the ongoing maturity, building deeper relationships within that particular church. And what I would like to do is to talk specifically to the small group, life group leaders, and I want to share with you 10 vital keys that I think that uh, this will help you to gain the most from your small group experience. Now, this will not be an exhaustive teaching on how to lead a small group. It would take many days to do that. In fact, what I would encourage you to do is to go to our website at lifeovercoffee.com and you could just type in the word small group. That's how we have titled it here and that's how you would find it. But again, small group is a synonym for life group, care group, home group, shepherding group. They're called different things. But the big idea is where 10 to 15 people gather uh, to where the idea is to apply God's Word to their life. Some people do the Sunday sermon. Some people do books. Other people do workbooks. Maybe it's seasonal and topical. Well, I want to cover all of that. And, and again, I'm just going to give you 10 ideas. I do believe that as small group leaders, as you take these things to heart and try to implement them, and if you want to do more research, uh, I have written a ton. I have one-hour webinars on small group leadership and several other webinars as well that will help for those of you who are leading others, like the Doctrine of Repentance, for example, How to Overcome the Fear of Man. We have a lot of material at lifeovercoffee.com. And if you're leading a group of people, then I would encourage you to take advantage of that. And you can start with this episode here. This is 492. It's titled 10 Vital Keys for Small Group Leaders. I want to walk through these 10. And again, do the research and you'll find a lot more help for you. As always, for those of you who are uh, supporters of our site, you know that you have access uh, on the back end uh, where you can go into your private setting here on our forums at lifeovercoffee.com. Just hit the discuss button in the navigation bar and then just type in your question about small group. And we would love to help to come alongside you in a dialogue kind of way and answer some specific questions that uh, that you may have. And so I want to get into it, 10 vital keys for small group leaders. But I want to share with you, because we get this question quite often. In fact, I just got an email today where someone was asking, hey, where can I get life over coffee? Because they wanted to be part of the cool kids. And, and I understand that. And I'm sure that many of you do as well. So I thought what I would do is just show you our life over coffee. Uh, this is part of our merchandise selection. And it really ties in with what we're trying 
trying to communicate to the body of Christ that any two people can come together and resolve their problems over a cup of, cup of coffee, and that is the big idea of our ministry. We want to help people to mature in Christ, and if you want to do it the right way, <laughs> I would encourage you to get our our coffee, our particular brand. This here is a dark roast. And again, you can go to our store. And if you, if you can't find it in our store, just write us. Uh, go to the footer of the website and say, hey, do what my friend here did today. Said, hey, how can I get a hold of your coffee? And you can order as many bags as you wish. Now, Here's a pro tip. Many of you already have our coffee because uh, you bought it as we've done conferences all over the country and where we have been uh, selling our, our merch. And one of the things that I've told you, and I want other people to know this as well, is that when you order our coffee and then when you use it all, obviously order more, but save the bag and then fill the bag up with sand or maybe <laughs> fill the bag up with your own brand of coffee. That's fine. But this is a beautifully branded bag and it actually communicates our message. And so if you have the bag on your kitchen counter or on your table, People look at that, it says Life Over Coffee, Conversations for Transformation. On the back, it has a verse here from Matthew eleven twenty eight 28, that you're familiar with. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I would give you rest and a cup of coffee. We added that, of course. But anyway, go to our store, and again, if you need help, you need assistance, just write us and let us know. Uh, but this is our Life Over Coffee, and I, I did want to answer that question. Many of you who have been watching the videos for a while, you know that I typically have this mug here, this Yeti mug. is Conversations for Transformation. As you can see here with our nice coffee logo on it, you can get this. I, this may be 22 ounces. I'm, I'm not sure, but the ounces are laid out for you in the store. We also have a black and a green color or a sea glass. This is sea glass or green. This is a larger Yeti as you can see the size here. And so if you like a larger Yeti, they have uh, different types, tops that you can get. This is one with a straw. Some people want a little bit more. So my friend Matt in Colorado who wants a little more, he needs a little more life over coffee. And so we do have the larger one. And again, you can see the difference in these two Yetis. And so you can get the, this is really a regular size and it's way sufficient for me, uh, but for you overachievers. And again, you can get the uh, the I guess this is a a pearl maybe and then this is the sea glass and then of course we have the black as well and all of them say conversations for transformation and for those of you who won't be part of the cool kids get life over coffee yeti there's t-shirts and other stuff as well but I did want to answer that question uh, for several people that have been asking and so go to our store and you can check those things out contact us if you have any questions all right so episode 492 10 vital keys for small group leaders these are not in any particular order but I want to work through them and so I'm just going to call it key idea and this is key idea number one everyone in the group must understand the group's goal to keep to keep the group focused on its purpose, not just its purpose, this is what we are about, but also its methodology. This is the process in which we are going to accomplish small group life in this group. So it is essential that everybody knows the purpose. Now, if you're just starting a small group, that's the ideal time to let people know that this is what we are about, 
this is not what we are about, whatever that is. So people come come in with the expectations of knowing uh, what to expect, how small group is going to uh, happen. And then if anyone gets off course, as they will, uh, that always happens. We can always focus back, well, this is the purpose of our group. And then every now and then you can uh, just restate this uh, during your small group in six weeks or whenever's best. I would encourage you to re-envision people on what the small group is about when no one has messed up. That, that's, that way it's not corrective. Uh, when no one's messing up and everybody's doing it right and there's no no need to correct anyone, that would be a great time to reestablish what the mission, what the purpose, the methodology is. And again, you really want to get that in people's minds. And so again, you have to have the purpose of the group. Now, what is the purpose of the group? In my view, the best purpose of any small group is sanctification, it's transformation, even over and above uh, a Bible or a book study. Now, I'm not throwing the Bible or the book study out with the bathwater because obviously the Bible is essential and books help us in a theoretical way to grow in either Bible knowledge or sanctification theory. And so they are essential. But this is something that I have experienced uh, throughout my Christian life, in my own life as well, but also with counseling a thousand people too is that growing in knowledge is the easy part. And I would say that growing in knowledge is also the safe part. Uh, actually, you can hide a lot of sin in a Bible study. And you can hide a lot of sin in a group study where everybody is focused on that book, uh, that thing that is in front of us. Now, again, Bible studies and book studies, workbooks and theme theme classes and courses are fine, and we need to keep doing those, but we also have to acknowledge that there is a, a backside liability to these, and you can learn Greek, and you can parse any word. You can be a master exegete of God's Word, and you can uh, teach a book forwards and backward, but yet you can hide a lot of sin because we're talking about sanctification theory. We're talking about uh, Bible knowledge, and we're not really talking about how we change or what is going on in our own lives. We are a book, too, known and read by everyone in the room. And so we need a context where we become the primary book, where it's book talking to book, person talking to person without looking inside another book and throwing us off the scent of how sanctification could happen. Growing knowledge is easy and safe, but transformation requires more than knowledge acquisition, and a small group is an excellent context for transformation. The way that I describe it here within our community is that knowledge applied equals wisdom, and so what you have are two huge silos, and in one silo it's full of knowledge, and then in the other silo 
it is, well, it has application in it. I'm not going to say it's full of application because this is a systemic weakness that I see across Christianity is that we are ever flowing, ever building, ever flowing, even overflowing and adding more rooms to our knowledge silo as we become smarter and smarter and smarter in theology. And again, that's a great thing. However, if our application is not keeping up proportionately with our knowledge, then, well, knowledge can make one really arrogant. And so we want to make sure that we are filling both silos up proportionately, appropriately. And so there has to be a context for this application to be filled up and a sanctification group or small group. And I'll talk more about the reasons why in just a moment. But right now, I'm just talking about the purpose of the small group, that everybody is focused on the purpose. They know what it is and they know what the methodology is. Now, I would suggest that the purpose and the methodology, one, be a sanctification group to where we can focus on application so that we can keep up with all of this knowledge that we are accruing, not just from our local churches and our pulpits, but because of the plethora of information that we have on the internet, as everybody has their favorite pastor outside of their local church. When someone says, you know, Rick, who is your favorite pastor? It is the one who is preaching at our local church on Sunday because that is the message that I want to learn how to apply. That's the one that I want to focus on. More on that in just a minute. Key idea number two, before enjoying a loving, meaningful, and intimate relationship with another human being in a small group context, then one must have an in-depth understanding, experience, and practice of the gospel of Christ in their life. You see, there is assumption that when you come to a small group meeting that transformation is going to happen, and then sometimes we'll say, and you'll hear this, I've heard this, that small group is, is shallow, that it's not deep, or my church is not deep, or my church is shallow, and how can we have these deeper relationships with one another, and we can become frustrated without examining root cause. You can't have a deep relationship with another human being if they do not have a deep and deepening relationship with Christ. Our relationship with Christ, whatever that may be, deep and deepening or shallow and non-existent, that will set the tone for whatever our relationship will be with each other. Now, you can apply this across the board, not just in small group. I mean, a marriage can be that way. A husband and wife, they can have a mediocre relationship, spiritual relationship with each other because one of them, let's say, does not have a dynamic relationship with Christ. If both husband and wife are not passionate about Christ and seeking to mature in Christ, if, if one or both are not, then it is impossible for them to have a deepening relationship with each other because to grow deeper is to be spiritual, not just physical and not just doing fun things, not just going to the game, not just enjoying a movie, not having a dinner out. Those are superficial things that are, I think, essential. But as far as deepening is concerned, a deepening relationship is a spiritual relationship. Therefore, there is a prerequisite to spirituality, which is 
is a deep relation or a deepening relationship with Christ. And so the question that you have to ask, if small groups are, are shallow and it seems like we can never get into the good stuff, or if human relationship, whether it's marriage, parents and children, church member to church member, friend to friend, if those relationships are not growing deeper with each other, then we want to step back and examine what is our animating center. Everybody has an animating center, that thing that excites us, whatever it is, that thing that we are passionate about. And whatever that thing is, it will creep out into the extremities of our lives, and that will be the thing that would identify us. You'll hear it said sometimes like, wow, that person is really passionate about golf, or that person is really loves and then fill in the blank, whatever that may be. As you work from, back from the periphery down to their animating core center, their heart treasure. You identify their treasure, you identify their heart. That's what I'm talking about. Well, if our animating center is Christ, then one of the extremities that that's going to work out on will be small group life. Our animating center will break out on us in small group life. Now, if our passion for Christ is not breaking out in small group life, for example, which is the topic of this episode, then that means that's not our animating center. Something has supplanted Christ in our life. Here's key idea number two. Before enjoying a loving, meaningful, and intimate relationship with another human being, one must have an in-depth understanding and experience and practice of the gospel or of Christ in their life as well. Key idea number three. In whatever way you discern that a member of your small group ought to change. And so you're sitting in a small group, and again, this is for small group leaders. This is episode 492, 10 vital keys for small group leaders. And so the leader is sitting in a small group, and they are discerning that this person needs to change in one way or the other. Maybe they struggle with anger. Maybe they struggle with patience. They're impatient. Maybe they struggle with self-righteousness as they... Uh, look down on others. Maybe they struggle with fear of man, that, that they're not stepping out, that they don't have courage, that they are, are, are in bondage to fear. In whatever way that you discern that a member of your small group ought to change, then the small group leader becomes a portrait, becomes a picture of that changed life before in front of that person as you prayerfully and dependently expect God's strength and timing to help that individual. And so that's key idea number three, is that you become a portrait of the very thing that you would like to see them emulate. This is how Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He inserted himself in the linkage, in the sequencing of Christ's likeness. He says, hey, you follow me as I follow Christ. And so as a small group leader, you see each individual in the church, in, in the small group, and you are charitably assessing them because you want to help them. And you see these weaknesses, these vulnerabilities, maybe sin in their life. And it's like, I want to show them how, so I want to emulate it. We want to put ourselves as small group leaders in the sequence so that people can see a physical, breathing representation of the very thing that you're trying to teach. Now, it's one thing to say, Jesus had courage. Jesus was righteous, not self-righteous. Jesus had 
patience. He was not a sinfully angry person. That's great. But then when you see that in someone's life, especially the leader's life, the opposite would be that we are not emulating Christ-likeness and we're asking them to be Christ-like, but we are not doing that ourselves. Now, the implication here is clear that when we mess up, because we can't emulate Christ perfectly. So when we mess up, we also want to embody, we, we want to be a portrait of what repentance looks like as well. One of the most beautiful pictures that a parent could give a child, that a husband could give a wife, or a wife give a husband, or a small group leader give their small group, is for them to sin, and then for that husband, the wife, small group leader, parent, is to walk out repentance and show them what it's like. In whatever way you discern that a member of the small group ought to change, key idea number three, then you become a portrait of that. Now, again, uh, if you're not a small group leader, which most of you are not, but if you are a parent or if you are a spouse, that key idea applies across the board. Key idea number four, each small group member is vetting their leaders. Now, they may not say this aloud. They may not articulate this. Maybe they haven't formed the, the structure of the words and sequence the words in a sentence that, that says, I'm vetting you. But if you have established that this is the purpose of the small group, we are here to do sanctification. And I want to emulate that as best I can, what that looks like. I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. And even when I flub up, when I sin against you, sin against someone else, I want you to emulate me as you watch me walk out repentance. The small group members are probably not going to say, I have two questions, but I guarantee you they have two questions that they're asking. And if you identify these for them and talk through them, Every one of them will say, yeah, those are my two questions. Actually, I just haven't thought about it like that before. But we are a sanctification group, and you're asking me to be vulnerable. You're asking me to be weak. You're asking me to be humble. You're asking me to be self-disclosing appropriately. This is a sanctification group, and you want me to change. Therefore, I need to, I need to let you know incrementally and appropriately more and more about my real self, that self behind the fig leaves. And if that is true, then I have two questions for you, small group leader. Question number one is, can I trust you? Are you trustworthy? Can you handle the truth? Can you handle my truth? Will you judge me? Will you love me? What's said in the group, will it stay in the group? Will you look down on me? Will you come alongside me as a humble servant? Can I trust you? I mean, you're asking me to share these things because this is a sanctification group and you want me to mature and grow. Are you a trustworthy person? That is a big question, as you might imagine. But then the second vetting question that they have for you, small group leader, is, are you able to help me? Do you have any sanctification game? Do you have the ability to be a disciple maker? Are you a small group leader? Mean that you have a uh, you have the ability to come alongside me and to walk me through my issues, my situational difficulty, personal problem, relational struggle that's going on in my life. Can you help me? I mean, 
why should I share all these things with you when I know that you're not going to be able to help me? Now, some small group leaders will, will say, well, you know, I'm not able to do that. I can't help people with those kinds of problems. Well, then we need to be honest about that. Then let's fall back to the first question. Then can they trust you? Have you created a sphere, an environment of grace to where they are willing to share with you because they trust you? And even though you might not have the competency at this point, maybe you haven't grown into the gifting or maybe you have a lower ceiling to where you're not able to do that kind of discipleship care. That's okay as long as everybody in the room is working from the same sheet of music and we understand this about each other, then, well, I can get you help. I'm not able to help you, but I can get you help. And so two questions that everybody in a small group should be asking if the group is a sanctification group is, can I trust you? And so each small group leader has to has to answer that question. Am I a trustworthy soul to where they're willing to share information with me? Maybe uh, you say, well, the small group is shallow and people aren't communicating in a deeper level. Uh, maybe before we uh, uh, assess or even judge uncharitably the small group member, maybe we should ask this question, am I trustworthy? And then number two, well, am I able to help them? I don't know if you, for those of you who like, like you, you go to your fifth doctor and it's like, oh man, I got to, I got to share all this again. I'm tired of sharing what's wrong with me. Like, can I find somebody that can help me and then, then I can share what's wrong with me and just do this one time? And so we want to make sure that, one, we are trustworthy, and two, that we are growing in our competency to be able to help them so that when they lay it out before us, it's not a dud. And then if we can't help them, we want to make sure that they know that we will get them the help that they need within this local church. Now, for some, it may be that, well, I just have a lower ceiling, and I'm not going to be able to do this at that level. That's fine. Self-awareness is a humble thing. And it could be that others are growing, and you're maturing, and you may find you have a higher ceiling to where sometime in the future you will be able to do more comprehensive soul care. Key idea number four, they're vetting you. Number five, for change to happen, multiple contexts are needed, not just the small group meeting. If the small group meeting is all that you have, then you don't have enough to do small group if you expect sanctification to take place. And the reason why, well, there's multiple reasons. One of those is because if a person is, is messed up at a deeper level or they have been dragging their former manner of life for multiple decades, which many people have, maybe something tragic happened to them in their past. Maybe they did something they're very ashamed of of or someone did something to them, to them that they are very ashamed of and you have a sanctification group and then you want everybody to be vulnerable and transparent and honest and appropriately self-disclosing because you want transformation to happen but then that small group if you have 8, 10, 15 people in the group it will be very hard and I think 
there's a level of un unwitting unkindness here by asking somebody uh, to share at that level inside this group because there's too many people. Not only are there too many people, but there are people of different maturation levels. Then you have people coming in and going out, people who are hit and miss. They're one in four, two in four when they show up you know, a couple times a month. And, and so it's really not the ideal context for that kind of deepening, ever-growing sanctification. Within a local church, what you have is you have the corporate meeting on Sunday morning. Obviously, that's the largest meeting of the week. Now, in that meeting, people are not going to be transparent because, well, one, there's not enough time, and that's not really what you're there for to where you could just hunker down for an hour and, and work with a person within the corporate meeting because there's things to do. We're worshiping, we're praying, we're singing, we're listening to sermons, we're taking notes, we're working in the nursery and child care and, and youth group, uh, hospitality, greeters, parking lot attendants, and so forth. There's a lot happening at the corporate meeting, and it's really not ideal to have these kind of cathartic moments to where we can get into people's lives. But then you come to a small group where you have 12 people in there. Well, that's not the most conducive either. You can do some things, but not all things. And so you need another type of setting in order to do small group life. Well, a small group leader will understand this. It's like, hey, we want to get together as couples, for example. Now, in a couples group, you have four people. You have four people who are meeting, and now that has really whittled things down to where a person, I mean, you do that over a period of time, like once a month, for example, as you're intentionally meeting with people in the small group. And so you have a contact point in the corporate meeting. You have a contact point in the small group. You have a contact point as couples. And then the, the, the leader of the small group, he can meet with a guy one-on-one, -on -one, the wife of the small group, she can meet with a lady one-on-one, -on -one, and now it has, it has reduced to the smallest denominator, where it's one-on-one -on -one meeting. And so now you have these different contexts where sanctification can really happen, happen, opening the door to more and greater possibilities to get into the real things in our lives. Because, again, you can do many things by yourself, but sanctification is not one of them. We need each other. The one anothering in the New Testament is not all going to happen within a small group. And if a small group is all that you have, transformation will hardly happen, at least not on the level that it could happen if there was other intentional dynamic groups, uh, connection, contact points. Now, you also have grilling on the back porch in the summer. You have babysitting. You have emailing, texting, phone calls, going to the game together, going on vacation together. There are many different contact points that you could have with your small group. All of them together will build the relational bridge that is necessary to where a person begins to trust the small group leader and then also, not just trust, but they begin to recognize if this person has the competency or not to be able to help them. And then their vulnerabilities will grow uh, as they have smaller contexts that are more conducive to more transparent communication. Again, God gets into all of our lives down at a granular level, but there, have, there has to be context and 
in order for that to happen. And if the only context that an individual has for that to happen is the small group of 10, 12, 15 people, uh, then we are circumventing what could possibly happen in a, a small group member's life. You see, small group leaders are like under, under shepherds. The, Christ is the good shepherd. The pastors of the church, they are the under-shepherds. Now, I'm not saying that small group leaders are pastors, but they're doing pastoral work. There's no question about that. They're doing shepherding work. Sometimes they even call these groups shepherding groups because that is what's going on in a sanctification group. And so they're like under-under-shepherds. Uh, they're not called to be shepherds, but they're doing part of, of what, shep of what under shepherds do, a significant part, which is the sanctification care of that local body. And if you're going to do the sanctification care, we have to recognize that there will be a tentativeness, there will be an inhibition among the small group uh, members to be able to communicate at a level to where they can receive the soul care that they truly need. And then you have that in and out dynamic where people are coming in and out. You have different maturities within that small group to where, you know what, I just don't trust Bill Finn Mabel. And I don't mean that unkindly, but what I want to share, I do not want to share in this small group because I don't trust Bill Finn Mabel. And when I share this, it's going to be blabbed out across the Twitter sphere or out across this local church, and that's not what I'm here for. And so we don't want to put our small group members in that kind of tension to where, man, I really want to change, but I need a better context than small group. And so small group life, key idea number five, for change to happen, multiple contexts are needed not just for the small group meeting. Transformation rarely happens in small groups, but in smaller contexts. And so you want to think like a funnel here. Corporate meeting, small group meeting can really be great. And then couple-to-couple -couple meetings and guy-to-guy, gal-to-gal meetings where it gets smaller and smaller. And then some of the stuff that we have been dragging around all of our lives now has an opportunity to be exposed to the light in a smaller group setting. Key idea number six, when Lucia and I have led small groups throughout the years, we had a mantra, a bumper sticker, and it went like this, give it a year. Give it a year for small group life to happen. Give it a year is a, a standard perspective regarding change. I mean, think about it this way. All that I've said before, you know, about trusting the small group leader, I trust you. I believe that you have the competency to help me. I don't trust Bill Finn Mabel in this small group, and I know you want me to be self-disclosing, but for what I have to say, this is not the place. And then there's people coming in and out of the small group. It's going to take time to build that relational bridge. 
And so give it a year is an excellent way to govern the small group leader's heart so that they don't have an elevated expectation that night number one, I lay out the purpose and the methodology of this group is is sanctification. This is what we're doing. Let's go deep. Boom. Let's plunge. Well, you'll be the only one that will, you'll be the only one that jumps off that bridge because no one else is going to go that deep. Give it a year is a standard perspective regarding change. It takes a while for a small group member to trust the leader to reveal an issue and to ask for help. Now, if the group is a seasonal group, it will be nearly impossible to go deep. And so if you're going through a topic, if you're going through a workbook, if you're going through a book, it will be virtually impossible. If you only meet for a year or you only meet for nine months from from September or August to May during the school year, and if the rhythm is disjointed like that, and then you meet with another group, then you're not going to be able to accomplish this. You change your purpose and change your methodology because you're not going to have a sanctification group because it takes time to build relationally with a person. And if there are inconsistent beats, meaning that the church member, small group member, is one in four, two in four, that they're not committed to the small group, well, transformation is not going to happen. We know that. And so we say, well, you know, Biff only shows up two and four. He's not going to experience transformation. That's true. Everybody knows that. Well, it's also true if you have seasonal groups. And if you change every year, you're not going to have it either because it takes time to build into a person's life. Now, I'm not saying that seasonal groups are wrong, topical group, book groups, or wrong. As I said earlier, we're not throwing the Bible out with the bathwater, but if you're going to have a Bible study or if you're going to just meet for a season, then lower the expectation because it has to be much lower than this transformation that you could have if the group was together for a long period of time, building deeply into each other's lives. And if it's a seasonal group, then just understand And it will save a lot of us from getting frustrated because we want this to happen, but we're putting a a square peg into a round hole and it will never fit. And so if it's a seasonal group or we're just going through a book and we're not having this eye contact where, where we are the book and we're having these honest discussions with each other, then let's be honest about what we're doing and let's be reasonable about our expectations that it's not going to be sanctification at a deepening level that gets into the granular level of our lives. Now, what that will mean, though, is that there will not be this deepened transformation that can happen. And all of us need that. I need that. I need transformation at a granular level, but it will only happen when I spend time with people over a long period that have a similar kind of intentionality. And so Lucian, this is key idea number six. Lucian, I have had this mantra for years when we've led our small groups, give it a year. And I remember leaving one particular small group many years ago as we left the host uh, of that small group they were hosting at their, at their home. And uh, we left their home heading to ours. And uh, I, I leaned over to Lucia in the car. I said, give it two years. Give it two years. This was a tough group. 
And what I mean by tough is that, well, they, they were just not going to, sanctification was just not going to happen in the first year. Now, part of that was because some of them, because of their, their religious experience, they didn't have a category for what I'm, what I'm saying here. I mean, they were like a deer in the headlights. And, and some of them, because of their past experience where they've been judged, they've been hurt, by the local church or individuals in the local church, and it's like, wow, you want me to be vulnerable? No, no way, no how, not in this universe. And so they were resistant to that because they have been beat up or they, they, they trusted their leaders, and, and now they bring that broken trust into this relationship, and here's another leader, a small group leader, and he wants me to trust him, no way, not, no how. And so we had to build that relational bridge with them, to build that trust with them. And it was just not going, a year was not enough time to build that kind of rapport with them to where they would be vulnerable enough to where we could truly, genuinely, in good faith, uh, interact with each other. So again, nothing wrong with seasonal, uh, seasonal meetings. But however, if you're going to have a seasonal group, however that's configured, uh, then you need to lower the bar on sanctification because it's a square peg in a round hole. Key idea number seven, Sunday's sermon is the best source material for small groups. There is not any more material out there for application than, that happens within a, a local church than Sunday's sermon. It's better than a Bible study for application. It's better than a book for application. It's better than any topic that you may want to go through. Now, let me explain. First of all, I said earlier that the formula for wisdom is knowledge applied. That is the formula. And so we have these two silos. We have a knowledge silo, and we have an application silo. Those are the two silos. And we are forever building and stacking and filling the knowledge silo uh, with Bible knowledge and book studies and sanctification theory, etc. This is something that good churches just do. That's what good churches are. And, and, and so the, you, you can't go into a good church and not have the knowledge silo <laughs> pressed down and spilling over and flowing out into the community, I mean, into our lives. We're growing in Bible knowledge. Good churches do that. And so the question then is not how can we create more Bible knowledge and a better book study. Those things are going to happen with our eyes closed and one arm tied behind our backs. Knowledge happens in good churches. We are knowledge dispensers. But where we are weak is the application of that knowledge. And so the question comes for small group, what is the best source material to apply? The best source material is the Sunday sermon. Now, here, here's why. You, you go to a good church and a good shepherd, and you ask that good shepherd how much time he spends preparing his sermon on Sunday. The average will be, and, and I've, I've asked many pastors this, and the number, the number is between 20 and 30 hours. A, a good shepherd will spend between 20 and 30 hours preparing their sermon on Sunday. 
Now, the average is 25 hours. That's the average of many pastors that I've asked this question. They all say the same thing. I'm talking about good shepherds. They spend 25 hours. 25 hours. This is how a sermon happens. From This is how good sermons happen from good shepherds. A pastor will ask God, God, what, is, what would you like for me to share with these people? What do you want these people to hear? What do you want them to learn? What do you want them to apply to their life? What kind of transformation are you trying to bring into their life? What is the vision for this church and how you want to guide these people into this vision? What do you see in the future for this church and how can we get there? A pastor is begging God to give him a message through uh, a, a, maybe he's going through the book of Ephesians and he's trying to get his mind around this particular verse or this particular phrase or this particular chapter. And he is appealing to God to, to open up his mind, to eliminate his mind so that he can get his mind around this message this Sunday for these people. And then he spends 25 hours in prayer meditation, reflection, studying, language studies, commentaries, crafting the sermon, writing it out, working through it, and then he gets up on Sunday morning and he's not satisfied. <laughs> the artist is never satisfied with his work. And then he tweaks it a little bit more, and then he gets up and delivers the message. Sunday's sermon is the best source material for small groups because nobody in that building has spent as much energy, as much prayer, as much time devoted to the deliverance of one message that entire week, week in and week out, whoever that uh, preacher is. That is the message. It's the number one message that will be communicated. All the Bible studies are fine. All the workbook studies are fine. All the 12-week the classes are fantastic but nothing transcends the Sunday sermon. And if we want to grow in application, then we want to take the best source material that comes out of that local church on Sunday morning and to apply it practically. Applying the sermon later in the week has many advantages. One of those advantages is you overcome the curve of forgetfulness. The curve of forgetfulness is, is that when you first hear something, if you do not intentionally ingrain that into your minds, then after 30 days, it will drop out of your mind as other stuff rushes in. And this is what we experience in our own sanctification today, because we live at the top of our minds. We live on the surface of the internet. We are flooding our minds. The, the, the internet is storming the gate of our mind and just pushing information in and washing it right out, and it just flows right through the curve of forgetfulness because there's no mechanism, there's no intentionality about allowing that information to sink down into our psyches, to sink down into our souls. If you have a small group, you have the, the perfect companion to the Sunday sermon, knowledge dispensed, knowledge applied. The Sunday sermon is knowledge dispensed, and now over a period of a couple of days, three days maybe, you meet on Wednesday, and you begin to apply that knowledge practically. That thing that God wanted this pastor to grasp, to craft, to communicate, now has been handed off to the local church member, the small group member, and now they're going to work it in. Think about dropping a rock in a pond. 
God drops the rock in the pond of the pastor's mind. And then the pastor works it out in these concentric circles. And then he delivers it to the next circle, and that is the small group. And then the small group has an intentional game plan to implement that into the lives of the small group members. And then the members implement it into the families, and the families implement it into the communities, and the communities implement it into the world. When you have these companion pieces of the dispensing of knowledge and the application of knowledge working in tandem. You overcome the curve of forgetfulness. You have a methodology for syncing the most important message that this church will hear in their entire week of sinking it down into the psyche, into the long-term memory, which is going to be hard to flush that message out because you have an intentional plan for allowing it to sink down into our souls. Key idea number seven Sunday's sermon is the best source material for small groups. Number uh, key, key idea number eight. I want to talk about the three small group killers. I'm only going to mention three. If you want to sabotage a small group, these three things will do it. Now, you can add to this list, no question, but we could go on for days about how to kill a small group. And so I'll just mention three. The first one is fear. Fear is absolutely normal. I mean, fear is part of the of the Adamic condition. It's a part of who we are. That's why you would hear fear not over and over again uh, inside uh, inside Scripture that we just fear. It's who we are. We're fearful. We're timid. We're shy. We struggle with guilt and shame, worry, anxiety. All of that is a word cloud that just steams up out of our hearts. And so fear is the, the overarching word that actually encomp- encapsulates all of these subcats of, of worry, anxiety, shame, guilt, and so forth. But fear is so normal. And so as a small group leader, that you're going to expect that. That's one of the reasons that you want multiple contacts to, to build relational bridges with people people because you know that everybody in the group it struggles with fear to varying degrees. Some of the people will be more mature and they have they have mortified that or they are better at mortifying their fear and they'll be more open open they'll have more courage. Other people will be more timid, more shy, more inward, some of its personality. Uh, that you'd have to address as well. Uh, and so, but fear is normal. And so you have to understand that. That's why all of the, the preceding ideas, the seven preceding ideas are absolutely essential because fear will be in the heart of your small group member. Number two uh, is isolation. Now, isolation makes sense. It actually flows out of fear. Adam was afraid. Adam began to isolate. We are afraid. We begin to isolate. Now, we can isolate in different ways. We, it could be overt isolation to where I am fearful. You know, it's like when the small group leader says, hey, uh, how did you apply the sermon, uh, Sunday sermon into your life? And then everybody, <laughs> everybody stares at their Bible or they start uh, moving through their notes. They've had three days to think about this. They should be sitting on the edge of their seat, and they're re- they're ready to go. Hey, I heard Sunday's sermon, and the Spirit of God spoke to my heart in such such way, and really identified some things that I, I I want to address. And I've been talking to God about that this week, and I've experienced grace from God in this particular area. And I have three days to do this. 
well, people will isolate and they will hide in plain sight, not sitting on the edge of their seat ready to go, but sitting back at, back on their seat, looking at, staring at their Bible, staring at their nose, flipping through their nose, staring at their shoes or staring at somebody else's shoes, but not making eye contact. And so they're isolating in plain sight in the small group. You'll have other people, and this is more of a pass. maybe that's a passive isolation. And then you'll have this other unwitting, maybe ignorant isolation where Biff is one in four, two in four as far as, as far as his rhythm of showing up in small group. That may be intentional that he just does it. He knows what the small group is about. And no, I don't want to be part of that. That's a little, little bit too more, a little, little too intentional, a little too intrusive. And I really don't want to do that because I I'd rather just hide behind my fig leaves as Adam did. And so he creates his incongruent rhythm with the beats of the small group where he's one and four, two and four. And then you have others who just isolate by not communicating or uh, they, uh, it, it's, they, I, I'm sorry, they isolate because of things that have happened to them and they're waiting for that relational bridge to be built. Maybe they want to be vulnerable. Maybe they want to be transparent. It may be, it's like, finally, here's a place where I can receive help, but I'm going to hide for a little while because I'm vetting my small group leader. Can I trust him? Does he have the competency to be able to help me? And so we can kind of hide in plain sight as we nervously do not reveal anything, even though we're consistently there. We can overtly hide by having an incongruent rhythm of one in four, two in four like Biff. Or we could hide out of fear because, well, you know, I'm vetting my small group leader or maybe my past experience was not that spiffy. And so... I'm just going to isolate this way for now by not communicating what I really need to communicate, but I'm just afraid to. Three small group killers. One is fear. One's isolation. The third one is sin. Sin is insanity. Uh, the best way to say it, sanity is Christ-likeness. The sane mind, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Sanity is the mind of Christ. Anything outside the mind of Christ is insanity. By the way, we're all insane. Everybody is insane because nobody has the perfect mind of Christ. So the big question is, is not are we insane or not? We are. The big question is, which way are we leaning? Are we biff? And we have this incongruent rhythm, and we want to maintain our sinfulness in an ever-increasing sinfulness, ever-increasing insanity, or do we, or we want to move into the mind of Christ in an ever-decreasing insanity? But we have to recognize that sin is a part of our lives. Three faith killers, fear, isolation, and sin. Key idea number nine, the leader. I've talked about this earlier, but he has to be a skilled discipler, not just a facilitator who is willing to lead. Not a placeholder, not a plug-and-play person who's just pushing the button on uh, the VCR connecting the TV to Wi-Fi. You're looking for a true leader with a clear gift mix that affirms their leadership gifting. Let me run through five, not an exhaustive list, but the first one is it's a leader as opposed to what I said, a facilitator. A facilitator works from a script. 
And when a need arises from the group, they're unable to help because, well, they can't deviate from the prearranged script. The pastor has given me three questions that we're going to that I'm going to ask this Wednesday night. And I'm going to ask these three questions. And please don't bring up anything. Don't bring up any problems that you may have that's going to cause me to go off script because I can't. I'm a facilitator not a leader. My job is to to connect the TV to the Wi-Fi and push the button and to facilitate this meeting. If you have a problem, you need to go to a leader because I'm not a small group leader. And so the small group leader actually needs to be a leader, not a facilitator. Number two, wisdom. For example, when someone hijacks the meeting, the leader must know how to restore order. Or when someone expresses a problem that's not according to the script this night, but they're not hijacking the meeting, they're actually being self-disclosing and saying, hey, I trust you, I need help. That leader has to have wisdom to work down into the problem and to help them to extricate, restore them in a spirit of gentleness, as Paul would say in Galatians 6, 1. A leader must be a leader. A leader must have wisdom. A leader must have courage, number three. They're in charge of the meeting. Sometimes that may be confronting someone who's dominating the time or someone who wants to turn the group into something else. This is a Bible study, not a sanctification group. The leader must also have courage to be able to speak in a person's life in a compassionate, in a compassionate way, but also a competent way, and that does take courage. Number four, they need discernment. The leader needs to know how to deal with the heart issues, which means they can get under the surface of a person's life. It's not just upper level. This is what they are saying. This is what's happening behaviorally in their life. But this is a sanctification group, and it, can it connotes much heart work and practical application that goes beyond theory. And so that small group leader has to have the discernment to do that. And then finally, number five, replication. And that is really the litmus test for any leader. The litmus test is the ability to replicate yourself in someone else. That is a leader. If you can't replicate yourself, then you're not a leader. And by the way, if we don't go and make disciples, which is what leaders do, then we're not qualified to lead. If we can't if we can't push the gospel mission, the Great Commission forward of going and making disciples, then we're not a leader. We are a, a follower. We are a spectator, but we're not a leader. And if we do not do that, by the way, the Christian mission will cease to exist. We are one generation from the Christian mission ceasing to exist if we don't have leaders who can replicate themselves in other people. So those are some of the qualifications that you're looking for. Not an exhaustive list in a small group leader. And then finally, key idea number 10, everybody's messed up. Everybody in the group is messed up, including me, including the small group leader, the theological word for this is totally depraved or not entirely sanctified. So you want to be discerning without being cynical. You want to be discerning without being suspicious. Cynicism would be a, a sinful leader. Suspicious would be a sinful leader. But the, the opposite of that is, is, is not assessing. The opposite of that is not charitably judge. I mean, we are assessing. We're always assessing. We're also we're always charitably judging people, because 
we want to know who these people are. And, and, and part of what we know about everybody in the group, including the leader, is everybody is, is totally depraved, not entirely sanctified. There's nobody in that group that is perfect. Nobody. And so we go in with that kind of discernment and we charitably assess everybody in the group, thinking about how to build a relational bridge to that person that builds trust, that compels them to reveal their messed upness because they trust you and they believe that you have the competency to help them. A sanctification group is a group of messed up people with the leader, the chief, the, the chiefest of all messed up people. And with that kind of insight, the leader aware of that, so he's asking God to give him the ability to be able to step into their messed upness and to help them to mature into ever-increasing Christ-likeness. This is episode 492 at lifeovercoffee.com. The title of it is 10 Vital Keys for Small Group Leaders. I have 10 questions for you, but I'm not going to share them for time's sake. And so I would encourage you to find episode 492 at lifeovercoffee.com. 10 vital keys for small group leaders. And then head over our, to our store to be part of the, the cool kids and, and get Life Over Coffee coffee so that you can have an ac exceptional small group, and then for you overachievers, make sure you get a Yeti as well and do life over coffee and implement these 10 vital keys for small group leaders. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.